We live in an age which is very concerned about reputation. You know, if you get a celebrity who says or does something which brings them up in the news in a bad way, you know, there'll be companies who have used that person to, to promote their brands and they'll come under pressure to drop them. They don't want to be associated with their reputation or their, they're worried that their company's reputation might get dragged down with it. Or political groups will often go through the past of their rivals in great detail, looking for that terrible thing they said 20 years ago. Or that dodgy person that they associated with. And the idea is cast a little bit of doubt on their reputation. Because that goes a really long way. And a bad reputation can be hard to shift. But it must be about ten years ago that someone said something on this subject that really stuck with me. And still all these years later, I keep coming back to I can't remember the exact contents, apart from the fact it was a minister's conference. But um, we, uh, but there was one of the guys who I knew said, everybody's concerned about their reputation when what they should really worry about is their character. He says, if you look after your character, your reputation will look after itself. You look after your character, your reputation will take care of itself. Uh, we've been working through these seven letters to uh, that we find near the start of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, written to seven churches in Asia Minor or what was Turkey as we would now know it, towards the end of the first century. And when I plotted out this series, I knew that uh, I had one more church to preach on than I had weeks to preach on them. And so this week we're kind of combining two of them, Sardis and Philadelphia. And they kind of work well together because, as you can see, they're quite close together on the map. If I can... uh, I'll see if I can get... Yeah, there's Philadelphia and there's Sardis. They're right next to each other on the map. Um, But in many ways, the places in the churches could not have been more different. Sardis was an ancient city. Philadelphia was quite new at this point anyway. Apart from Ephesus, Sardis was the largest of the cities to whom John wrote. And it had a great history. But its more recent past was a bit less illustrious really. We might say it was trading on its past glories. Whereas Philadelphia was the smallest of the cities to whom John wrote. Sardis was severely damaged by an earthquake in about AD 17 and never really recovered from that. And they were viewed quite differently by the other churches around them. I don't know if like they ever had... You know, Asia Minor church assemblies or anything like that, the way we have Baptist assembly every year. I don't know if they ever did that. But Sardis was the one with the reputation. They appeared, they seemed quite successful. Other churches wanted to be like them. If they had those conferences, Sardis probably provided the keynote speakers and ran the seminars on how they were so successful. 
Philadelphia, on the other hand, was a struggling little group. It wasn't really that strong. Probably lurched from crisis to crisis. Others probably admired them and going, you know, you've got to admire them and keep going, don't they? But nobody was wanting to be them. So I imagine it comes as something as a shock to read Jesus' assessment of the two of them. For Jesus had pretty much nothing positive to say about the thriving Sardis. Whereas for struggling Philadelphia, Jesus had absolutely nothing but encouragement. Sardis had the reputation. Philadelphia, it seems, was the one with the character. We look on the outward appearance. God's looking at the heart. Sardis was seen as successful. But in reality, it was complacent, sleepy. It was growing sluggish. It was dying. Whereas being complacent wasn't an option for Philadelphia. Keeping going till next Sunday was a struggle for them. But they were faithful. And the Christ who walked among the seven churches and held the messengers in his hand knew their heart. In the letters, John has always shown good knowledge of the cities to whom he's writing and the stories of those cities. And he has used that in letters that he sends to the churches. And that's especially true of Sardis. Sardis was a big city. It was built on a couple of different levels. There was a newer part in the valley along the river Hermas. But the main part, the old town as we might call it today, was actually up a big steep cliff about 1,500 feet high making it seem so easy to defend and almost unconquerable. There just didn't seem to be a way into it. And it was only when the city grew too large for the ledge at the top that they actually began to expand down into the valley. And it was said that Sardis stood like a great big watchtower guarding the Hermas Valley. And one of the features of Sardis was that it contained a library of the registers of those who were considered good citizens of the region. So, uh, and if you were a good, loyal citizen, your name would be in the book. But if you did something bad, not only might you face execution, but they would stroke your name out of the book of citizens. It was like you were being erased from history. And just below the time, there flowed another river, the Pactolus, which at one time had gold-bearing waters, you know, like the gold rush in America and all that. And much of the wealth of Sardis came from this gold. And Sardis was a wealthy city. In the 6th century BC, it was ruled by a man called Croesus, whose fame lives on today in the expression to be as rich as Croesus, to be, to be really rich. And, but that sense of wealth and that being impossible to conquer or hard to conquer or believing they were impossible to conquer made them quite complacent and a Greek statesman called Solon who's, who's traditionally associated with the invention of democracy he, uh, he came to visit the city and he said yeah yeah it's all very nice it's very impressive and whatever but 
you're taking this for granted. You know, you are becoming a bit lazy and self-indulgent and not really looking after things. You need to watch that. And he was ignored. And then Croesus went to war with Cyrus the Great. And that's the same Cyrus that we read about in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, Cyrus laid siege to the city for 14 days. And he offered a reward for anyone who could find a way into this unconquerable city. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And then one day... One of Cyrus's soldiers saw a Sardian soldier drop his helmet over the battlements of the city. And this soldier watched see what he would do. And then he saw that soldier climb down this bank, fetch his helmet, and climb back up into the city. And he said, hold on a second, that must mean there must be a trail up in that mountain. And so one night they organised a party, they found a trail and they climbed up to the city which was supposedly they'd never been able to conquer before. And you know what they found when they got there? It was completely unguarded. No guards in sight. They were so certain of their security that they decided it wasn't worth guarding the walls. And the city fell to Cyrus. And you'd think, you'd think that after that they would have learnt their lesson that future rulers of Sardis would not make the same mistakes again. But those that forget history are doomed to repeat it. And about 300 years later, the same thing happened again. One of the things that they used to do was if an animal died or if they executed a prisoner or something like that was that they would basically, rather than bury them or burn them, they would simply chuck them over the wall into the valley. And all the vultures then would gather around that part of the valley. And uh, and so there was another occasion when the city was under siege that one of the opposing army noticed that at certain times that the vultures would just sit and perch on the walls of the city. Which told them what? Food, yeah, anything else? No guards, yeah. So no people nearby. And an army climbed the same trail got into the city, and just as Cyrus had found all those years later, completely unguarded. And they were so confident that they were going to be okay, that they got complacent. And when they least expected it, disaster befell them. And you can kind of see how all that feeds into this letter. At one level, Sardis looks so successful. It's considered lively, it's busy, it's flourishing, it's the the thriving church in the area. It doesn't seem to have all the problems that the other churches have in the area. You know, um, up until now, the churches we have considered have really faced problems that could be broken down into two types of category. Either they faced persecution from outsiders, that might be the state or from the Jewish community around them in the synagogue, 
because in the early days of Christianity, uh, they were just seen as one group within the wider Jewish community. But as time passed, from all, for all sorts of reasons, the, synag- the synagogue leaders sought to distance themselves from the Christians, and that led to the Christians being thrown out of the Jewish community. Alternatively, they didn't face persecution from outside. They were challenged by heresy inside. There would be groups, sometimes they'd be quite small, sometimes they would even make it up into the leadership or in influential positions, and they would lead the people astray. So it was kind of the attack from within. And Sardis doesn't seem to have either of those problems. It doesn't seem to have any opponents outside. It doesn't seem to have challenges within. And perhaps that's why on the surface things seem to be going so well. Everybody wanted to be like them. But the same thing that had happened to their city in history twice was happening to their church. They were untroubled by all the problems that the other churches talked about when they gathered together for their assemblies. And they were quite secure, comfortable and growing complacent. And so, yet, there was no sign of heresy that was creeping into other churches. And that's so far so good. But it might just be a sign that people weren't engaging or thinking at all. Disputes can be destructive, but often they can at least be a sign that people care about something. And we can wonder, we can wonder whether it really is, is that really worth caring about? But at least it's caring about something. Lack of debate or dispute, it might be a sign of unity, but it could just as easily be a sign that people are apathetic or lazy. And perhaps some of the other churches looked enviously at Sardis and the peace with which they were able to go about their business and the fact that they didn't face any opposition. They thought, I wish we could be like that. But maybe it was just a sign that Sardis wasn't worth challenging. That they didn't stand for anything. That they weren't standing out. What's the point of persecuting them? They're just like us. And things seemed to just be ticking along quite nicely. But they were becoming complacent. They were drifting. Perhaps it started well. Perhaps they were growing. Perhaps they were still growing. Perhaps they'd been successful. But it's possible to be successful for a season and it to be the result of successful people being good at what they do. It doesn't massively surprise me that lots of churches which are considered thriving and successful churches and get to speak at all the conferences are in places where there are a lot of affluent, talented and successful people living. But it's possible when you have all that to rely on it, to become self-reliant. And not make room for the Spirit. Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. I'm the one who knows all about these churches. I'm the one on whom all seven churches depend. I'm the one who gives them life. Life that will really last. And maybe Sardis had the numbers. Maybe they had the resources. Maybe they had the budget. Maybe they were imposs- Maybe it was easy for them to engage in all sorts of exciting possibilities. But it was because they could generate that themselves. And they felt, no, we don't need anybody else. We can rely on ourselves. But as the 19th century philosopher Thomas Carlyle once said... For every 100 people who can stand adversity, there is one who can stand 
prosperity. For every 100 who can stand adversity, there is one who can stand prosperity. Adversity keeps you on your guard. Prosperity and success causes you to drop your guard. One of the, often the biggest blunders come not when people are under serious stress, but in times of ease, because they're not paying attention so much. And that was what was happening in Sardis. They were becoming secure, they were complacent, it was all just going so well, everybody thought we were awesome. They were in danger of disaster befalling them, because they weren't keeping watch. Whereas that kind of luxury wasn't open to the people of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a relatively new and small city compared with the others. But it was designed with a particular purpose. It was the Greek Empire's doorway, long before, just before the Romans arrived, it was the Greek Empire's doorway to the east. And it was designed to be a missionary city for the Greek empire, for the Greek way of life, for the Greek culture. They would do things in a very Greek way and everyone would see how awesome this was and want to follow and be like them. And there is something of that being reflected in what Jesus has to say to them. Some of the words in this passage are actually quite important to me personally. Uh, when I first came here, way back in July 2013, for the first time, I preached a sermon on, ice, on, the, on Jesus as the door. And I remember, when I first came here, the words from Revelation 3, I set before you an open door. We're on the wall behind me, based on a sermon Basil Amy preached at the start of your pastoral vacancy after Bob left. And the first sermon I preached here, as I say, was on Jesus at the door. And those words on the wall were a big part of my sense of calling when I moved here. And I still come back to them from time to time. But there is another context to this. Because far from having doors opening to them, the church in Philadelphia was used to having doors slammed in their face. We have encountered some of this before when we looked at the church in Smyrna. But within, the, within Philadelphia, there was a large Jewish population. And by contrast, you shouldn't think of it being like a big church on one end of the street and a synagogue on the other. It wasn't like that. It was a big synagogue. And in contrast, a few, a small handful of people, maybe a couple of dozen in Philadelphia who were followers of Jesus. And at this time, the synagogue are seeking to distance themselves from the Christian community, so they were basically throwing them out of the synagogue. And they were being told, you've got a choice to make. You can stay in the synagogue, or you can follow Jesus. You can't do both. And if they chose Jesus, the door was shut in their face. They were being told, we're the people of God. We're the children of promise. You don't belong here. But that little band of followers of Jesus at Philadelphia had hung in there. They'd stuck at it. They'd not given in. They had kept faithful. And like nearby Sardis, Philadelphia was badly damaged by the earthquake in AD 17. But Philadelphia was particularly prone from that point on to ongoing tremors and earthquakes. Nothing felt secure or permanent. 
ground kept cracking open. It, everything kept shaking. And more and more people lived outside the city now than inside it because they were constantly having to flee the centre because they never felt safe there. And all of that feeds into what Jesus says to them through John. He says, you're being excluded and shut out. You're being told you don't belong. You've got the door being shut in your face. And I don't don't know what makes them think that they have the right to do that to you. Because Jesus says, I am the one who has the keys. I decide who the door opens for and who the door closes. I'm the one who opens the doors and closes them around here. He says, and I know that others look on you with pity. That you don't have the numbers or the resources of the people of Sardis up the road. Everyone thinks of them as the church most likely to. But then again, your city has always been the poor relation, hasn't it? And yet you were the one with a missionary purpose and culture. And it's happening again. You might think you're limited in what you can do. But it's actually you before whom I'm setting the open door. You're the one I'm going to open opportunities for. You're the one through whom the gospel of Jesus will be be, uh, spreaded. You might feel you've got nothing to offer. You might feel isolated and thrown out. But it's through people like you that I'm going to keep all those promises I've been making down through the ages, starting all the way back to Abraham, about blessing him and being a blessing to the world. It's not going to be easy. At times, everything will shake and fall apart. You're used to that, aren't you? You might never really feel secure. But if anyone knows that feeling, it's you people of Philadelphia. And you might be the one who staggers up to the conference, slightly embarrassed that things aren't going as well for you as for the others. You might feel a bit inadequate when that speaker from Sardis is telling you how you should be doing it. Don't worry about that. You're the one who's going to be the pillar of the faith community. You're the one that's go- it's going to be built around. And I will keep you safe and through it all. And do you know of the seven cities to whom John wrote, only one has actually maintained a significant Christian presence. Things changed in the last century or so, but there's only one still retains a Catholic bishop. At the Shear, as it's called today, or Philadelphia, as it was called then. Little struggling Philadelphia outlasted the whole lot of them. Sardis had the reputation, but Philadelphia was the one who worked on character. And that turned out to be what counted. 
So what do we do with all this? Well, perhaps things are going really, really well for you right now. And if they are, God bless you. Yes. Perhaps you do have lots of people who look up to you. And maybe you have people who wish they were you. You might wonder why they wish you were you. But you know, but, but maybe there do have people who think that way. Maybe others think you seem sorted, that you have it all together. And you might at times start to think, yeah, I'm doing all right here. Beware the sense of invincibility. Because that is when you are most likely to drop your guard and make your biggest mistakes. So if things are going well, praise God. Count your blessings. But watch your heart. You may have a reputation. Watch your character. But let's be honest, I suggest there's probably more of us who, if we're honest, feel a bit more Philadelphia. If you don't, you don't feel particularly strong, you struggle to hold on to faith by a rope, you know, it's threading, you know, it's hard sometimes. And you hear other people's success stories and you feel a bit embarrassed and inadequate. And you can quite easily get down on yourself. And you don't really need to do that because, you know, probably maybe other people are a bit down on you anyway. And all the while, Jesus just wants to encourage you. To say, hang on in there. Because that's the message that runs through both layers. For although Jesus doesn't have much to say about Sardis as a whole, he does notice that there are a few people who have kept faithful there as well. And they haven't been forgotten just because they were part of a rubbish community. And that image of their names not being blotted out is is Jesus' way of saying, you know, I've noticed you. You're not forgotten. And I won't forget you. Or perhaps you feel a challenge towards something new. That a door is opening for you. And you're not sure whether you've got the strength to walk through it. It makes you fearful. Well, it's not to the strong, the ones who have got it all together, that this promise has come. It's to those who will hang on in there and be faithful that Jesus says, I won't forget you. I will be with you. If you let me be the source of your strength. Don't just rely on yourself. However good you think you are. Lean on him. In you and through you. Jesus can do far more than you imagine. In us and through us. He can do far more than we imagine. But it starts with where you are right now. Don't wait until you've got it all sorted. Because chances are you never really will. And the promises aren't for the people who've got it all sorted anyway. They're not for the successful. They're for the faithful. And if we stick with them, if we're faithful, and if we rely not on our reputation but we allow him to develop our character. He will make us more like Jesus. And he will 
fulfill his promises and his purposes in us and through us. Grace and peace to you. Amen.